Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Roots of Canadian Conservatism. Samuel Lount and Peter Matthews. You have been arraigned upon several indictments charging you with high treason. Unhappily for yourselves, you have conspired to bear down the laws by violence and to introduce confusion and bloodshed where nothing should have been found but contentment and peace. You must surely have foreseen that you could not succeed in such an attempt without committing a series of crimes at which your nature should have revolted. It is for this reason that treason is justly regarded as the greatest of all crimes. It strikes at the very root of all social order, the awful sentence of death must follow. On the 29th of March, 1838, the Chief Justice of Upper Canada, John Beverly Robinson, pronounced sentence of death on Samuel Lount and Peter Matthews. Their crime? was their part in William Lyon Mackenzie's stillborn revolution of the previous December. Mackenzie and his men had failed, but Robinson, in his moment of solemn triumph, was also facing the death of his hopes. For though the rebellion did nothing by itself, it began a process of change that was to lead to a new social order in the Canadas. Tonight on Ideas, we present the third and final program in our series on the roots of Canadian conservatism. Two weeks ago at this time, we examined the career of Richard Cartwright, one of the loyalist founders of Upper Canada. Last week's program examined the ways in which conservative ideas shaped Upper Canadian political culture in the years after 1812. Tonight, we trace loyalist conservatism from the 1840s to the present. What has been lost from this tradition? And what has been preserved? The Roots of Canadian Conservatism, Part 3, written and presented by David Cayley. In 1839, the British government decided on a plan to unite the provinces of Upper and Lower Canada, and a new Governor-General, Charles Pullet Thompson, was sent out to put the plan into effect. Using the enormous Upper Canadian debt as his tool, Thompson set out to lever the province's unwilling Tories into the new political setup. Responsible government would follow within a decade, and disestablishment of the Anglican Church would come even sooner. For John Beverly Robinson and his fellow Tories, it represented the final failure of their struggle against democracy. That new species of responsibility would in reality be nothing more or less than a servile and corrupting dependence upon party. It would be an anomaly without example. In comparison with it, the Republican government of the United States would be strongly conservative. Whenever such a system shall be established, from that moment may be confidently dated the decline of integrity and independence in public servants, of peace and contentment in society, of security for property, confidence in the laws, and attachment to British institutions. Robinson's friend, John Macaulay of Kingston, was equally despondent. 
There was a time when whatever were the failings of the much-abused family compact, we had a government of gentlemen. But now we observe the decay of old-fashioned loyalty and a general want of that respect for authority and station which once prevailed among us. The conservatism of today is a sort of diluted Toryism, and it must admit to a further dilution if it wishes to gain new influence and preserve a remnant of the old principles. For my part, I remain as much of a Tory as ever, and I am too old to change. One of the cornerstones of Robinson's and Macaulay's Tory outlook had been an established church, and in the years before 1837, there had been bitter enmity between the Methodists and the Anglicans over this issue. Thus, there was no more telling sign of the changing times than the emergence in the 1850s of a new spirit of cooperation among the various Protestant denominations. Anglicans like Bishop John Strawn, who had previously denounced the Methodists as dangerous fanatics, now made common cause with them against a secularizing tendency which Strawn saw as a far worse evil. It signified, says historian William Westfall, a fundamental change in the nature of upper Canadian society. In the 1840s and 1850s, the Church of England was disestablished. The clergy reserves were secularized, at least in, to the extent that the revenues from the clergy reserves would no longer be applied for religious purposes. They went, interestingly enough, to economic development. The lands which had one point been set aside to build the Kingdom of God in Upper Canada were now used to help finance railroad development, a sort of nice touch of history. The Church of England was dismissed from the provincial university in 1849. Now, what this meant, of course, was that the Anglicans, that sort of cornerstone of the Anglican vision of Upper Canada, the church establishment, that idea was simply wiped off the political and cultural map of Ontario. And once it leaves, it removes the central obstacle to intra-Protestant cooperation. The Anglican Church has great difficulty. It can no longer define itself in terms of the Canadian state because the state's no longer Christian, let alone Anglican. It's now run by people who, in Strong's views, have no religious principles whatsoever. Consequently, it becomes much easier for Strong, the Methodists, and the Presbyterians to join together in a sort of informal Protestant alliance. And of course, what becomes the central issue for these people? it becomes the character of Canadian society, the very materialism which leads to the separation of church and state. When the state says our concerns are no longer religious in a structural sense, our concerns are now primarily economic, then the fallout from that economic development becomes the central issue that all these churches must address. So you move into a new dialectic, if you like. And that dialectic is now the relationship between the secular and the sacred, the world of railroads and the world of God. The world of the 1850s, secular, democratic, materialistic, was already recognizably modern. But this is not to say that either loyalism or conservatism had been simply jettisoned. Many scholars have argued that the continuities with the pre-rebellion world far outweighed the discontinuities. Historian Sid Wise, for example, 
has mentioned the persistence of early Upper Canadian elites, the continuing economic and moral power of the state, and the importance of respectability in social life as significant continuities with the first generations of conservatism. Darcy McGee, an important politician of the pre-Confederation decade, reflected the vigor of conservative ideas when he wrote to the Montreal Gazette in 1863 on the subject of the American Constitution. Where the original fault lies in the American Constitution is not hard to say. Their authors were so busy looking after their newfound liberty that they forgot that they too could not long govern without authority. They found it impossible to claim a due proportion in the new constitution for authority. They could not advocate and condemn the same principle in the same breath. They dared not attempt to mimic the part of kings and viceroys by asserting the divine origin of government, the natural right of men to be governed, the virtue of civil obedience, and all the other ethical truths which must every one of them enter into any human system that ever expects to merit the blessings of divine providence or to withstand the loosing and corroding atmosphere of successive ages. As the scythe to the fabled bundle of sticks, as the hoop to the staves, as the helm to the ship, so is authority to liberty in all well-balanced governments. Darcy McGee was no loyalist, being mainly concerned to preserve the influence of the Catholic Church. And yet all the elements of loyalist conservatism can be found in his letter. The interdependence of authority and freedom, the predominance of duties over rights, and a deep suspicion of the United States. Canada, at the time of Confederation, was far from being the hierarchical and explicitly Christian society of which loyalists like Richard Cartwright and John Beverly Robinson had dreamed, but it was still profoundly conservative, and it still cherished its difference from the United States. Historian Sid Wise, in a statement also quoted in last week's program, cites the political ideas of Oliver Mowat as a case in point. If one begins with the assumption that there must have been continuities and starts looking for them, they're there for all of us to see. Let me cite one example which is, is really quite enthralling. And that's the example of Oliver Mowat, uh, the liberal premier of Ontario for an exceedingly long time. from. 1871 until well into the 1890s, who dies, I believe, in 1905, in this century, as Ontario's lieutenant governor. Now, if one examines both Mowat's thought and his actions, they are different in no significant particular from the thought and actions of those generations of conservatives who had preceded them in Upper Canada. There is the same emphasis on the importance of the Ontario state. There is the same emphasis on the moral role of the state to be exercised through a centralized school system. There is a total acceptance of the loyalist origins of the province, though Moat himself is not a loyalist. And in fact, the core ideology is conservative. In the 1880s and 1890s, the Liberal Party was faced with the whole reciprocity versus commercial union issue with the United States. Mott's response to that in a, in a series of really quite extraordinary speeches is the response of old Ontario. If John Beverly Robinson had been alive 
to listen to Oliver Mowat speaking in Niagara-on-the-Lake in 1889 on this issue, he would have disagreed with not one element in that speech. Not one. There was no rejection of the past, whatever. The development of a distinctively un-American Canada depended on its connection with Great Britain. Britain served as both a source of conservative political ideas and as a counterweight to the United States. The connection was supported and sanctified by the myth of loyalism. I mean by myth not a fiction, but rather a larger pattern in which a people see their history unfolding. The loyalist myth was a secular variant of the basic biblical story of fall, exile, and a new covenant which leads to a glorious redemption. It reached its height in the late Victorian period with the formation of the Imperial Federation League. This was a Canadian movement that sought to harmonize national self-assertion with the loyalty tradition by turning the empire into a federated political union. Dennis Duffy is the author of Gardens, Covenants, and Exiles a study of loyalism in the literature of Upper Canada. In the period from, let us say, 1890 to 1914, to be a Canadian nationalist was to be a British imperialist. It was because Canadians saw the best hope and surety for their future security lay within the empire that had founded them and that was protecting them. Loyalism was the way that those who occupy Upper Canada first became aware that they weren't part of some ragtag little operation going on in the corner way out back end of nowhere, but that really they were part of a larger struggle, or to use the phrase of St. Paul's, citizens of no mean city. And at that point, at that point, we see loyalism being blended in with the imperialist myth because to whatever extent Canada is conscious of its role within a larger imperial setting, it is conscious of the origins of that role in the loyalist experience. Now, of course, that also begs a very large question because, after all, it was the mismanagement of the British Empire by the imperial authorities that made the disaster of the American Revolution happen in the first place. In other words, the empire to the loyalist might have gotten them out of the mess, but the fact is it was imperial politics which got them into the mess in the first place. So we have, as we have in so many human stories, the story's got to start somewhere. Sometimes the most interesting thing is what the teller of tales didn't put into his prologue and what's also there. Dennis Duffy indicates here both the strength and the weakness of loyalism. Through the movement for an imperial federation of British nations, the loyalists sought a wider, more universal identity for Canada. But at the same time, they were often forced to overlook Britain's actual indifference to Canada and its concerns. And this inevitably led to a certain sentimentality in loyalism. Northrop Frye. Nobody coming from the planet Mars and studying Canadian history de novo would believe that Canadians retained a loyalty to the British government through a, a century of total ineptness or the 
British had always preferred American interests to Canadian ones and made it clear that they would have more respect for Canada if it were no longer a colony. But the problem from the Canadian point of view is what else are we going to do? Where, where we else are we going to find our identity except in the continuity of that tradition? I think these people saw very clearly that there had to be some alternative pull than the United States or else they would cease to be Canada. Do you see that's first? George Grant. We are a closer satellite of the United States than Poland is of Russia, aren't we? Really. We don't have different religion and we don't have different language, except for the French. And I think an alternative pole was the idea that there were, was another civilization, another English-speaking civilization that provided certain alternatives to the American account of civilization. And I think they also, in different ways, saw Great Britain as continuing the throne and the altar. Now, that was also largely going in the, in the modern era, too. But you see, I think between the two, it's, it's the throne and the altar and some alternative pull down the St. Lawrence and across to Europe. All this largely ended in 1914. The First World War destroyed forever the sentimental and dependent attachment to Great Britain, which was at the heart of loyalism. It may have survived a century of British indifference, as Northrop Fry suggests, but it could not survive the horror of the trenches and the often callous incompetence of British military leadership. George Grant. The Loyalists went, all went off in loyalty to Great Britain, you know, very quickly, not all, but vast numbers, and were slaughtered very quickly in this crazy, for, you know, massive technological war. And, and therefore, this tradition was rather wiped out to a very great extent, I think, because the brightest young men in it were killed. I th and I think also it comes into this. Once the English had decided, and in my opinion very stupidly, to fight the Germans, it meant the end of Europe. It meant the end of Europe as an alternative attraction to the United States. This disillusionment with England, says George Grant, was what opened Canada to the forces of liberalism and continentalism in the next generation. A wise old loyalist woman said once to me the shrewdest thing about this. I said, why after 1919 was the politics of Canada left in the hands of people like Mackenzie King? And why didn't uh, you know, some of the people you know have anything to do with politics. And she said, because she had lived right through the war, and people she'd loved had been killed, you know, in, in that way, that the war had been so hideous that the people who came back from it were so exhausted that all they could be interested in was money and sex. Now, I think that is a fundamental thing about Toronto. It therefore becomes, as the Americans become more and more important, it becomes more and more a purely capitalist society after the war.
Loyalism, of course, did not simply disappear the day the war ended. As late as the 1940s, it remained impolitic, at least in Toronto, to speak against the British connection. When University of Toronto professor Frank Underhill suggested in the 1930s that Canada was an American country whose destiny lay in a closer relationship with the United States, he was bitterly attacked by the Toronto establishment. This, for example, was what the leader of the Ontario Conservatives, George Drew, had to say about Underhill, then a prominent member of the CCF, in a 1943 election broadcast. The socialist leaders object to the statement that they are anti-British, but the record of the CCF is clear. For several years, Professor Underhill of Toronto University has been the head of the brain trust of the Socialist Party. No one needs to guess about his position. Let us take his own words. Back in October 1934, he outlined the CCF policy in relation to Britain and then used these words. Of course, that would mean breaking away from the empire, but we would have to be prepared to face that. Then let us see whether the war changed his attitude at all. On the contrary, in August 1940, when Britain stood almost alone, this was what Professor Underhill had to say. I quote, The relative importance of Britain is going to sink, no matter what happens. The importance of Britain going to sink? Do you think that a party which would even tolerate such a man as its spokesman will preserve the loyalties he has condemned? Of course it will not. So you get an intellectual of the between the wars period like Frank Underhill articulating this exact notion of his disillusionment with the British imperial leadership. Dennis Duffy. Now you say Frank Underhill got into a lot of trouble about that. Why do you assume that he is speaking for the majority? And I say, because he got into so much trouble for it. Had the people who supported the empire in Frank Underhill's day felt absolutely confident about what they were doing, they would have said, oh, here's another yo-yo of a U of T professor burbling on about this and that. What do we care? The fact that the ruling class went after him like a bunch of dogs after a mechanical rabbit shows you that they themselves had some insecurity which this annoying unpleasant man had obviously touched on and that indicates to me a widespread shakiness about what they had gone through as loyalism began to lose its cogency as a source of canadian identity the image of the loyalists in canadian historical writing began to change as well National independence replaced imperial unity as the great theme of Canadian history. And from this viewpoint, the loyalist conservatism of the years before 1837 appeared as at best irrelevant and at worst reactionary. Historian Morris Careless. In the 20s and 30s, you have this reaction against elitism. You get the Western discontents and maritime. Then in the 30s, you get the far worse urban and rural and northern and everything else world depression. You get the apparently the tottering of society uh, around the world even and all kinds of questioning of basic values and then throw into that anti-imperialism, a heightened sense of North American existence, partly a reaction against Europe and against all the bloodshed in Europe and partly 
a sense of we've made our peace with the Americans, they're really just like us, and we're getting on very well, and a much closer intermeshing that you did get in the 2030s. Put this all together, and you do find that uh, the values of conservatism and loyalist ideology look sort of silly, and so they get condemned as mere self-seekers and uh, fat cats trying to uh, put a sacrosanct uh, cover over their own dirty dealings. You get the reaction against them because they were supposedly presented as pure Anglo-Saxons and representing the dominant strain, naturally a changing Canada. Even a more American Canada is going to put, isn't going to accept that. And then equally you get people saying, but they really weren't that pure Anglo-Saxon anyway. But nobody really worked out a position on which to stand. So loyalism really almost goes down the drain except for its own little circles of, of the faithful who keep the flame alight, but who really only represent ancestor worship. And it looked as if loyalism, therefore, just simply was a dying force that would eventually disappear like other strange subcultures do when uh, the ages just simply mean that they die out. The decline of loyalism also reflected a singular fact about Canada, the inability of any single myth to comprehend the variety of groups who make up the country. In the United States, the chosen people myth of the Puritan founders was eventually transformed into a heady sense of national destiny. But in Canada, there were simply too many chosen peoples, all determined to maintain their separateness. Sid Wise. When you track most of our entering groups, back to their origins in this country, uh, there is always a golden age which lies behind them and which helps to maintain uh, the character of the particular group, its, uh, its distinction from other groups, its sense of itself. And so for the Acadians, of course, the golden age is th those lands from which they were ejected. For the loyalists, the golden age lies back in, in those days before the American Revolution when they farmed their, their rich lands in a land that God had given to them and uh, from which they had been cruelly ejected by uh, the revolutionaries. And one can find this similarly with many, many groups in, in Canadian society. It's an experience we're still having. Now, when you join that to a sense of group mission, to a belief that... Uh, you are God's instruments, that uh, it is divine providence which is working constantly over the unfolding of your group's destiny, you have a, a remarkably powerful group solvent or unifying force. All these things make for separate identity. I think that very fact is one of the reasons why providentialism never becomes a, a characteristic a kind of force connecting us all. It is pretty difficult, after all, to link chosen people myths. If you are the chosen, what have you do, to do with those other people who erroneously consider themselves to be the chosen? And so we have this fascinating conflict, for example, uh, between the Loyalists and the first wave of militant Orangemen who arrive in Upper Canada in the 1820s and 1830s. The Orangemen, too, are uh, a people uh, chosen by God uh, for peculiar purposes. They 
discover to their alarm and dismay that already existing in the society is a large group of people uh, who believe that uh, they are God's instruments, that they have a special destiny, that they are the preferred people, that they are the truly loyal with certain exclusive rights and privileges. All these are, in fact, precisely the kinds of appeals that the Orangemen hope to make in Upper Canada, and yet they're being outloyaled by the loyalists. So you have this fascinating uh, discovery on the part of people like Ogle Gowan uh, for the Orangemen these people claim they're loyalists. They're nothing but Americans, he says. <laughs> An extraordinary confrontation. Loyalism, in the end, could not provide Canada with a unifying myth. Like the competing chosen people myths which Sid Wise has just mentioned, it was used by its proponents to exclude rather than include other identities. And thus, it could never comprehend the reality of Quebec or of the successive waves of immigration which have transformed Canada. George Grant. I don't think it, after all, could have succeeded because you needed vast immigration to open the country. And you take the first great wave of immigration, which was English-speaking to a large extent. Toronto was sort of the El Dorado of the lower middle class from England. Well, they had no interest in loyalism just because they were English. Do you see what I mean? though they had some interest in the British crown and things like that. I mean, loyalism was very few people. And, of course, loyalism couldn't have any purpose or point in Quebec at all. And, in fact, it led some of these people in their Anglicanism to be, in a very stupid way, anti-Catholic, didn't it? You take a loyalist newspaper, which is now, I believe, called the Toronto Sun, but was originally the Toronto Telegram, the Toronto Telegram was, was very loyalist, but very Protestant, so that it just hated Quebec. Well, you know, in some ways, some of the loyalists, like Bishop Mountain, you know, people like that in Quebec, were very, very close to Quebec people. But many of them weren't. Many of them were arrogant and foolish about Quebec. I have, for instance, in my house a Bible from Quebec City after the first waves of the Loyalists. It's a Loyalist Bible of Protestants who went to Quebec, and all the godparents of the children are French-Canadian. You see, in a very sane way, you know. They moved in. Many of the early Loyalists into Quebec seemed to have understood the French, but many of them, those in Ontario did not. And I think Strawn was rather foolish about this. I think Strawn was very foolish about the Roman Catholic Church. And, and in that sense, he, he didn't see his essential unity with the Roman Catholic Church. George Grant's point here about John Strawn underlines what Sid Wise said earlier. Loyalism was often used to maintain a separate and exclusive identity, and thus it could not express a potential conservative consensus which cut across many Canadian groups. A final factor which needs to be mentioned in connection with the decline of loyalism is the decline of England itself as a world power. Canada's gradual change of allegiance from England to the United States during the period between the wars reflected the shifting balance of power within the English-speaking empire, a shift begun by the First World War and ended by the Second. The English themselves have been increasingly Americanized. You know, Europe is now an American colony as much as us. 
in de facto terms. And, but, but, you know, particularly in England, because they speak the same language. You know, Bismarck had said in the 1860s, Bismarck had said the great fact of the modern era is the, that the Americans speak English. And I think that was one of the shrewd, you know, it's a wonderfully shrewd remark. And the English have sort of been the errand boys of the Americans in Europe. And in that sense, their civilization ceased to be an alternative pole for Canadians. The effect of all this was that virtually within a generation, English Canadians lost the sense of themselves as a British people. More than this, according to political scientist Gad Horowitz, they lost even the sense of what it had meant to be a British people. British nationality is not an ethnicity. British nationality is a universal nationality to which anyone can belong, and it used to be understood this way. If Disraeli could become prime minister, you see, of the United Kingdom, if a Jew could become prime minister of the United Kingdom, though he, had con though he wasn't religiously a Jew at that point, ethnically he was a Jew. Right? So it's quite clear that by going to Britain and becoming British, you're doing something perhaps similar to what you do if you go to the United States and become American. Now, Canada was British North America. But somehow, because of the presence of the French here, and because of the presence of the United States to the south, people, in including ethnically English Canadians themselves, began to get the idea that British meant ethnically British, and that somehow the other ethnic groups were not British, and that uh, some sort of uh, slight was being done to them by continuing to emphasize the British character of English Canada. Right? Now, people began even to lose the sense of the term English Canadian, and it was replaced by Anglophone. See? Anglophone just means English speaking. People didn't want to talk about English Canadians anymore because they got the feeling that that would exclude Italian Canadians, German Canadians, Jewish Canadians. But the term English Canadian, like the term British, is not an ethnic term. I'm an English Canadian. My name is Gad Horowitz. I was born in Jerusalem, Palestine, and I'm an English Canadian. And 20 years ago, I could have called myself British without anyone raising an eyebrow. And the fact that I'm Jewish has nothing to do with the fact that I'm British and a British North American, you see. But over the years when it, this has been lost sight of more and more, and the term British, the British monarchy, British institutions, the British Commonwealth of Nations, all of these things increasingly have taken on the meaning of ethnically British, and Canadians have sort of reached a consensus that all of this British stuff has to be left behind because if we don't leave it behind, we're being unfair either to the French or to other ethnic groups. But in my opinion, when you leave British behind, then you leave everything behind that gives English Canada its historical character as a distinctive culture. And the only thing that's left is American. The Dominion of Canada is part of the sisterhood of the British Empire. I give to you assurance that the people of the United States will not stand idly by if domination of Canadian soil is threatened by any other empire.
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, speaking at Queen's University in August of 1938. His speech, as George Rollick has pointed out, marked the first formal and public integration of Canada into the American Empire. The trend continued during the war with the better-known Ogdensburg and Hyde Park declarations of Canadian-American Accord, and accelerated with Canada's eager embrace of its Cold War role in the 1950s. One of the few who spoke out against the direction of Canadian policy was Donald Creighton. As a historian, Creighton had stressed the formative influence of our political and economic ties to England. For him, it was necessity and not sentimental preference which had made us British. And he argued that by simply discarding these ties as so much sentimental baggage, we were willfully misunderstanding their critical importance for our national survival. Why don't we recognize the fact that this devotion to the imperial connection and to the monarchy is something that was beaten into us by events. It isn't a sentimental attraction, a sentimental connection. It's a real connection. Creighton's despair was echoed in 1965 by the publication of George Grant's Lament for a Nation. For Grant, the open American interference which led to the fall of the Diefenbaker government in 1963 marked the end of a sovereign Canada, governed by its own traditions. Tradition would still have residual effects on Canadian society, but it would no longer constrain our complete participation in an American way of life. Donald Creighton and George Grant, in their very different ways, both declared that the Canada they cherished had come to an end. For Sid Wise, the situation is precisely the opposite. He believes that the last generation of historical scholarship has brought the image of a new Canada to birth, a Canada of vibrant and exciting complexity. For him, therefore, to be a Canadian historian today is to be concerned with this newly perceived pluralism in Canadian life. I think it's to be uh, about the identification of difference and complexity. I think any true understanding of the nature of ourselves as a people or as peoples must begin with that assumption. That's a notion, of course, that uh, I share with a good many other Canadian historians, not them all, but Morris Carolus perhaps has been leader of that school. Which means that the Acadian experience, the loyalist experience, the experience of immigrant groups in the West is highly significant, not just in terms of their region or locality, but in terms of understanding us and our dynamics as a people. And therefore, when one examines Ontario history, one is pre presented not with these grand simplicities, but with, in fact, richness and complexity. Sid Wise's sense of the diversity, complexity, and resiliency of local cultures is shared by Northrop Fry. Fry argues that although we may have fallen under the political and economic domination of the United States, yet we have still achieved what he refers to as a cultural identity. 
I tend to think more and more as I get older that the only social identity that's really worth preserving is a cultural identity. And Canada seems to me to have achieved that. Um, so I don't join with other people in lamenting the loss of a political identity. Fry holds that a cultural identity is possible even in the absence of political and economic sovereignty because culture obeys different laws than politics. I think that culture has a different sort of rhythm from political and economic developments which tend to centralize and uh, that the centralization process has gone so far in the great world powers that the conception of a nation is really obsolete now. What we have instead of uh, among the great powers are enormous consolidations of, uh, of social units and uh, cultural tendencies are tendencies in a decentralizing direction. If you talk about American literature, for example, you have to add up Mississippi literature, New England literature, Middle Western, Californian, and so on. And uh, the theme of a cultural identity immediately transfers you to a post-national uh, setting. In such a post-national setting, regions become the operative units. And this, for Fry, accords with the nature of the creative imagination. The imperial tie to Great Britain was undoubtedly necessary for national survival, but it produced a literature that lacked a sense of place. Fry cites as an example the poetry of Charles G.D. Roberts. It is therefore only with the development of regional cultures that we are truly at home in Canada. A regional culture, as, as I see it, is a culture in which the writer has struck roots in his immediate environment. There's always something vegetable about the creative imagination. And uh, you can't uh, transplant James Rainey or Alice Munro to the middle of Brazil and expect uh, them to produce the same kind of work. They've become different cultural vegetables in that case. And uh, with the poets of the Charles G.D. Roberts generation, there was really very little of that sense of region. They, uh, the Confederation Ode of Roberts is inspired by a map, it's not inspired by a people. I think we're in a period of history now where we're just beginning to realize, um, as one book says, small is beautiful, that is, that, uh, uh, that there is a tendency to decentralize it and a feeling that the great world powers have grown to the point at which they're no longer workable anymore. They're becoming increasingly dinosauric in their, uh, in their functioning. And with that, the sense of, of a cultural or regional identity begins to emerge as a genuinely human identity. Northrop Fry's theory is intriguing partly for the way in which it converts disadvantages at one level into advantages at another. The disadvantages are our lack of national independence and the prevalence of strong, politically divisive group identities within the country. And yet, through them, we have providentially leapfrogged over the obsolescent national state and into the more truly human realm of regional existence. The conservatism that could not shape a nation assumes at last a positive cultural existence. 
what we have here is a new interpretation of Canada, and perhaps a new turn on the spiral of the loyalist myth of paradise lost and regained. What was broken at the national level is healed at the level of the community. Faced with the strength of regional, ethnic, and religious identities in Canada, we begin to see a new meaning in loyalism. Morris Careless. Loyalism represents a concern for continuity. The loyalty tradition, so to speak, isn't just something for the Tory side. It really is, it seems to me, for the great majority of Canadians, thinking of it now in terms generally of loyalty to institutions and patterns which have a continuity. It's part of the things that shape this country, which is, with a small c, a greater emphasis on, on conservatism. We are, with small c, a more conservative people. The French Canadians, the Anglo Canadians, and in many respects, the minority groups, uh, they've all got something they're trying to hold on to, and, uh, and are trying to cherish and save in, even while they adjust to what they find in this country. Um, Hugh McLennan, years ago, as you may know, pointed out that um, Canada was built by losers. And the point is that the French Canadians were the cast-off of the failed French Empire in America, and the Loyalists were the cast-off of the failed British Empire in America. The Scots who came out from the, uh, from the clearances in, in the Highlands, as McLennan said, they were the cast-off of their social system, too, that had failed them. So these people, in their dourness, if you like, grimly said, well, what we've got we're going to keep. They're not going to get rid of us this time. And so there's a kind of toughness in this determination to maintain some continuity that I think shouldn't be underrated. To me, there are things in the Loyalist experience which I find uh, extremely important as I attempt to define who I am. Historian George Rollick. And I'm absolutely convinced of the fact that this is true for many, many other Canadians. I would hazard the guess that members of the non-Anglophone, Francophone community in Canada are the ones who probably intuitively understand loyalism best of all. I would, I guess, argue that my father, an immigrant from the Ukraine with no real Canadian education, could resonate with the loyalists to a greater degree than most Anglophones I know, because he would understand the importance of land, sacrifice, and order, and also, in an interesting way, the importance of an oath of allegiance. These are things I think that many Anglophone, Francophone Canadians do not appreciate. I think that is an important link between contemporary Canada and the Loyalists a link which few people are brave enough to make. The idea that loyalism speaks to the Canadian immigrant experience would have been unthinkable a generation ago. But history changes with the times, and a new Canada has produced a new image of the loyalists. Loyalist conservatism was very much a product of its own age, and yet George Rollick believes that it also has a perennial relevance that still speaks to us today. I think that there is this concern about order and the feeling that in the final analysis an ordered society is superior to one permeated by 
individual liberty. That when the crunch comes, it's far better to live in an ordered society than one which is absolutely chaotic, where one is free to do what one wishes to do. And I suppose, as I look at the contemporary world, I have some sympathy for that point of view. I say that as a democratic socialist rather than as a conservative. And I think uh, in democratic socialism in the Canadian case, and I think in Western Europe as well, this reality has really been discarded. Uh, it's been replaced by a preoccupation with individualism and almost individual rights, which to my mind is the antithesis of a certain very important theme in socialism. But I think that this is really what Cartwright, Strawn, Stewart, and others were really saying to the 19th century world. I think they're also saying it to the 20th century world. A lot of us don't want to hear that message because it conjures up uh, all sorts of things going back to uh, Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin uh, where there's a lot of order. Uh, but what happens to individual liberty? And it seems to me it's that balance which is there. And I think what the loyalists were saying was that true liberty is there if there's true order. And one must have the two. And one must have a kind of organic sense of uh, who we are if we're going to have an enlightened form of order as well as an enlightened form of liberty. And uh, I guess uh, my, my major concern about contemporary life is that we have no sense of community. And I would suggest that there are features of their political social analysis which are as re relevant to Canada in the 1980s as this analysis was relevant to Upper Canada in the 1780s and 90s. Men and women will never be able to articulate what they want the ending of their stories to be unless they come to terms with the beginning of those stories. Goodness is not entirely an act of the will. Goodness is taught by example, by recollection, by the sense of self. You have to have a self to will before you can will the self to be good. I have no idea what, if any, role Canada will play toward producing a better world. But I do know this, that without the critical examination of self, that we will have no basis for hope. To whatever extent a recollection of the idea of loyalism makes Canadians wonder where are we coming from, then it will have played no small part in getting us to the great city, the true city of brotherhood and sisterhood that we hope we are all headed toward. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the concluding program in the series, The Roots of Canadian Conservatism. 
The series is written and narrated by David Cayley, with production by Damiano Pietropaolo. Technical operations were by Lorne Tulk and production assistance by Alison Moss. Readings, Paul Soles and Colin Fox. The music for this series was arranged and performed by Ian Bell and Anne Lederman, who are collectively Muddy York. Printed transcripts of these three programs will be available for $5, and you can get your copy by sending your request to The Roots of Canadian Conservatism, Care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. Don't forget to make your cheque or money order payable to CBC Enterprises. Please don't send cash through the mail. And please be prepared to wait six to eight weeks for delivery. A reading list on the subject of Canadian conservatism is available for free from Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Tomorrow night on Ideas, join me for the third programme in a series which looks at 25 years of Fidel Castro's Cuba. Inside Cuba, 25 years with Fidel. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.